Raise your hand if you've ever wanted to sprint out of here like those kids. <laughs> I, saw, I saw a couple of hands. <laughs> oh, that was meant to be rhetorical. I'm kidding. Yeah. Well, welcome, everybody. It's good to see you all. My name is Jesse, and I'm the pastor here. And if I haven't had a chance to sit with you and talk with you and hear more of your story, I would love to do that at some point. We're in the middle of walking through a series on the book of 1 Peter, and today we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8, if you want to turn your Bibles to go there. Well, in the 1900s, there was, it sounds like a long time ago, that was, I was born in that century. In the 1900s, there was a theologian and author named Niebuhr, who actually had a brother, I'm talking about one of the Niebuhrs who wrote a book entitled Christ and Culture, which has become somewhat canonical in many Christian circles. And it's a book about different ways or schools of thoughts in which Christians should orient themselves towards the culture around them. And of course, it's a long book, and he goes into a lot of detail. He breaks it down into five main categories. I want to highlight very quickly three of them and just talk about three categories that I think are probably the most prominent right now in our recent time as we think about how Christians should orient themselves to the culture around them, especially in the West. It's different in other cultures. So the three ways that he talks about is one orientation that Christians have towards culture often and historically is what he calls Christ against culture. So this would be Christians taking up their prophetic role to speak out against the ills and the sins and the evils that are going on in the culture. And so you find this way, uh, uh, Christ against culture, sort of that we Christians are called to contend with and go fight and go engage against the culture around them. So that's quickly called the Christ against culture. The second one, which is sort of my own adaption, adaptation from his book, is Christ away from culture which is Christians should withdraw as much as they can to retain their faithfulness and their holiness away from culture. So, of course, on the extreme ends of this, you have uh, Amish communities or Mennonite communities or monastic communities, but you have different iterations and versions of Christ away from culture, and the commitment is to raise families in the faith and commit to communities together in the faith and to retain a purity of faith and holiness together with other Christians, and the best we can do is withdraw from culture. So that's another school or another orientation. And then there's one which is sort of an extra category. It has several subcategories, which he would call Christ above culture, which sort of synthesizes this idea of the call to retain a holiness, but also the call to be prophetic in terms of speaking truth, but with the desire of ultimately fulfilling the telos, or the end goal of the whole Bible, which is Christ above all things and ruling and reigning above all things. And so you'll see different iterations of that in culture, and and people actually disagree on how they should walk in to create Christ above culture. And if you ever want to waste a lot of time, you can go on Twitter to see these conversations. I don't find them very helpful, to be honest, especially in that forum. But Christ above culture is sort of another category of how Christians have historically oriented themselves towards culture. Now, another show of hands. Question for you. Which one is right? Number one, raise your hand. Okay. 
That was also rhetorical. Good. Glad we didn't have any hands raised this time. Um, I think there are biblical merits and nuance and truth that you can find in each one of these positions. And there's actually a wide body of work that has happened since Niebuhr first wrote the book from all different colors and stripes within the Christian spectrum that provided nuance and critique and analysis of his book and what that looks like now. It's all over the internet. It's actually, there's a lot out there. And Christians have and will continue to debate about how we should rightly orient ourselves towards culture because it's a complicated, complex thing. Now, no matter how you slice it, no matter how you slice it, Christ above, Christ against, Christ away from culture, no matter where you land, there will always be complications. There will always be complexities where it's hard to know specifically how we should walk in this world. There will always be challenging situations. And that's why I'm thankful for passages like the passage that we're going to look at today because while this passage won't answer for us all of our questions about how Christians should orientate themselves towards culture, and while it won't give us the answer and a perfect framework for how we should proceed in every single situation, it does give us what I would consider some anchor points, some default settings for how we should think how we should orient ourselves, how we should act as the church oriented towards the culture, where no matter where you land in the spectrum of Christ, against, above, for, within, whatever term you want to use, wherever you land on this, on that spectrum, we know that at least we can cling to these things that Peter tells us here in this passage. Now, there are more things that I think the Bible tells us about how we should interact with culture, but there are certainly not less than these things that we're going to look at today and what Peter tells us. And if you remember, Peter's writing to these encouragements to groups of Christians that are living in all sorts of complicated situations. He's writing to Christians figuring out how to interact with a government who's run by Nero, by the way, who wasn't a good guy, wasn't just, wasn't righteous. He's writing to people who are in mixed faith marriages, who live without agency, He's writing to folks without any agency at all because they're indentured servants. So he's writing to those on how do they interact with the owner of the house who wants them to bow down to Roman gods, but they want to have allegiance to Jesus Christ. He's writing to people with agency and power. He's writing to all different types of people in different complex and complicated situations of how they should interact with the culture around them, how they should not only live but thrive as they walk together with God. And so I thought it's pressing for us as well as we think about this in our own context. Because while we don't live in a Roman household and while we don't have indentured servants or any of those things today, I think many of our situations are still similar where we're trying to figure out what does it look like to walk with the culture around us and still honor God and love others. So let's take a look at Peter's encouragement here. Chapter 3, starting here in verse 8. And this here is the end of a section, which sort of sits in the middle of the book. It started last week with what Stephen was saying to us, and, and it ends here in this section, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
So Peter here says the word finally because, like I said, he's wrapping up this section. So last week, Peter's encouragement was how should we, last week uh, when Stephen preached, his encouragement was how should we interact with the government that we don't necessarily know is just or righteous, but we still submit ourselves to anyway. And Peter said, be subject to the local authorities, for in this you honor God, in this you actually worship God in being subject to local authorities. And then that section continues, which we don't have time to cover in our seven weeks. Peter amplifies his message essentially to talk to people that don't have power and agency to create their own situations in life. They don't have agency to make their own decisions. And Peter uses this phrase twice, which I love, which is, he says, it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We're not actually preach about that, but it is a gracious thing in the sight of God when people are unjust towards you and you respond with grace and kindness. That this, Peter says, it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Imagine God looking down at your action and saying, wow, that is a gracious thing that you respond in grace. So he's talking about how people can live with grace towards those who have power over them. And it says it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. And, and this is the momentum that carries us into our passage today. Peter says, even though the rulers are unjust, respond to them with grace. He says, even though you don't have power in your current situation, respond with grace and kindness to those around you. And then he says, finally, all of you, whether you're someone who has power and agency, whether you don't have any, whether you're subject to a ruler or not subject to a Roman authority, he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So you can see the theme that's running into this section here. Our first default, our first anchor point for us as believers was what Peter's telling to his people is that we have a posture of humility, deference, and grace. Because in doing so, we worship God. In doing so, we act in a way that is gracious in the sight of God. That being humble, even when we do have rights, being gracious, even when we could demand things, we are living in a way that is gracious in the sight of God. So Peter's saying, all of us, take on this mind. Take on this mind that you're humble and gracious. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know about you. But this is not a natural reaction for me in my flesh. It's not my natural wiring. Especially living in a country like the United States, which is founded upon the idea of individual rights, for which I am extremely grateful, especially having lived overseas for many years of my life, I'm so grateful for the freedoms and the rights that we have in this country. And naturally, it goes against our nature to live in this way, to respond in the way that Peter's talking about. It's not our, or at least I'll just say for me, it's not my knee-jerk reaction to respond in this way that he's telling me to respond. When I hear someone say something unfair about Christians, that just is unfair and ignorant, or I see movements in our broader society that aren't just things that I disagree with, but to borrow the words of the Apostle Peter that we've read earlier in this book, when I see things in the world around us that are literally warring with people's souls, not just things I disagree with, but things that are warring with people's souls, my knee-jerk reaction personally is to respond, is to contend, is to fight, 
is to get into the fray. And what Peter is saying here is that our default, our knee-jerk reaction, our anchor point is to be humble, to respond with grace, and to be differential. Now, this is not to say we are to be doormats. It's not to say we're never to engage. We have the rest of the scriptures that tell us that. In fact, Peter later in the same passage talks to us about engaging and talking and responding. So he's not saying just lay down and be humble and be gracious and just let people walk all over you all the time. He's not saying that. But we are called, I believe, to take on the very nature of Christ, who, as we read earlier in our gospel, said this, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The context of that one mile, two mile is a, an unjust, occupying, oppressive Roman soldier that's asking you to carry his gear for him. It says, carry my gear with me one mile. And Jesus here says, go with this oppressor two miles. This is the nature and the teaching of Jesus Christ himself. Now, this is not out of weakness. It actually takes much more strength, I believe, to live in this way. Peter says, all of you, your default, your anchor point should be sympathy, a tender heart, a humble mind, a posture of grace. And so no matter where you land on this Christ and culture spectrum, <laughs> our default setting, our anchor point should always be humility, kindness, and grace. That's the first thing that Peter tells us. Well, why should we do that? Verse 9, he leads us into this next thought. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And he goes on to support that point by citing the Psalms. He says, when you, when you live in this way, it is, when you live in this way, you're counted as righteous. And when you're righteous and live in this way, you will receive a blessing to God. Do not repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless then, then there's that phrase, to this you have been called. So our second default is that we are designed, we are created, we are called, we are remade into God's image in order to bless so that we will receive a blessing. So we have been blessed to be remade, we're blessed so that we can go bless, and in doing so we receive a blessing. If you see a lot of blessing going on here. It's us walking into the biblical story that's present even to this day that God's called us to be a blessing to all those around us. So this is our second primary default setting is that we are called to bless. Our first knee-jerk reaction shouldn't be to de defend our identity or demand for our rights as much as that's wired within me. Our default setting is to walk into complexities and complications with a desire to bless others, to bless them. Because uh, these last three years have been so polemical in many settings, these conversations of Christ and culture really have been ratcheted up in many ways and pushed into overdrive about how Christians should interact with the culture with things that we disagree with. And, and many of these things are, are good things to talk about and rightful things to engage with. And in one of these conversations, I read this quote about how easy it is for us to take an initial desire to bless 
and allow that desire to bless to drift into some of our more flesh-oriented wirings. And so one writer wrote this. He says, he's talking about people that contended with the culture in the last three years. He says, but so much of today's punditry seems marked not by the weeping that lasts for a night and the joy that comes in the morning, but by resentment, by anger towards injustice that begins as righteous. So there's an initial desire to bless because you want to bring truth into darkness to help people see God's truth. There's an initial reaction to be righteous. It begins as righteous before succumbing to sinful impulses and indignation that no longer knows the tears of Jeremiah or the unstoppable joy of the Apostle Paul. What this writer was trying to remind us of is that our desire, our default setting, should be to bless, to bless others. And that oftentimes we want to bless the culture, we want to bless those around us by bringing truth, and that's a righteous impulse. But at times that righteous impulse and that standing in the truth, if we're not careful, I know none of you have had this problem, I've had this problem, if we're not careful it can lead to self-righteousness, it can lead to resignation, it can lead to resentment, it can lead to all sorts of things that the Bible does not point us towards. Don't lead us to life. And don't lead others to life. Our desire and our default should always be to bless. So I want to encourage you. It's always good. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 139. Seek me, O Lord, and know me. Test me and test my thoughts. See if there's any unclean way in me and lead me in the path of everlasting. This is us allowing God to do an audit of our hearts. Is our desire to bless? Is our desire to be right? Or is our desire to bless? Is our desire to win or is our desire to bless others? Is our desire to self-preserve or is our desire to bless? No matter where we land in the Christ and culture spectrum, our default setting should always be to bless, to bless those around us because we have been so blessed. So Peter says, walk in humility. Seek to bless others. And this last one I want to look at here is, it starts in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, I want to use this last point. I don't often do this in a message, but I want to use this last point as an opportunity to put a plug in for the book that I'm hoping all of us read this spring. No one will be judged for not reading this book, but, no, you won't be judged at all, but uh, the book is called Interior Freedom. It's a book about how we can walk into depth with God in a way where circumstances and things around us don't affect us, and we can embrace this freedom that God has for us. And Peter here gives us sort of an introduction to this place of interior freedom. He starts with this last section with this general principle. He says, most of the time, there are exceptions, of course. It's easy to find them in, in history. But most of the time, if you live in a righteous and humble way, if you live with a desire to bless others, most of the time you'll be left alone. Most of the time, there will be nothing to fear. Again, we can look at our brethren, the Amish. Now, there are examples of them experiencing trauma and pain from the outside. But most of the time, 
people just leave them alone and let them go on with their life. And there's this general principle that Peter points out that we don't have to fret. We don't have to live in anxiety or worry. Most of the time when we live in a righteous way, we're humble and we seek to bless others, that we have nothing to fear. But of course, Peter's not naive. He says that most of the time that will happen, but even if you are persecuted, and even if people don't want to leave you alone, and even if you do find yourself entangled in challenging, complex, and complicated situations, you can have no fear at that point either, because if it's God's will that you suffer, you will be blessed. Again, do not fear. And he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ as holy. Cling to Christ in a way that helps you to live beyond and see through the circumstances that are going on in your life to have peace in all situations. Now, one of the goals of this book that we hopefully, uh, most of us in the church will read together is it doesn't just say, grab a hold of Christ and live with peace but it actually walks us through a path of how we can cling to Jesus Christ in this way in our lives where we can truly embrace the words of Peter and not have fear or anxiety or fret about anything that's going on outside of us. And there's a quote from the book, which I'll read. It says, Despite the most difficult situations and circumstances that can restrain us, each person has deep inside them a freedom that no external power can take away. Because God himself is its source. And a person wins this inner freedom to the extent that they connect to its source, connecting to God himself. So this is what Peter is saying. Don't fret. Don't be troubled. In your hearts, honor Christ as holy. And when you live in this place, it frees you to embrace the humility that he calls us to. If we have interior freedom, then what does it matter what somebody else says about us? We already know who we are in Christ. If we have interior freedom as we interact with others in the culture and society, we can enter in with a true desire to bless. Not a desire necessarily to self-preserve or to advance our own standing or to, to help ourselves in any way. We are truly free to walk into any situation and any environment with a desire to bless. That freedom gives us that opportunity. And it frees us, as Peter says here at the end of this section here, to respond to people with gentleness and respect, to hold on to the truth, but to do so with gentleness and respect. We can do that when we have freedom, when our identity and our self-worth isn't tied to what they think or what happens or circumstances going on, but when we have true, deep inner freedom that helps us to float through all things, then we are free to answer with gentleness and respect. So this is our third default, that we seek interior freedom, that we cling to Christ as holy, that we don't allow anything around us to cause us to fret or to knee-jerk respond in anxiety, but we are free to live as God calls us to live. So back to our original question. Which one is best? Christ against culture, Christ above culture, Christ away from culture, any other iteration? What's best? I think it's possible to land in different camps, even within the same church. Where there's nuance and complexity, there will often be more than one faithful answer. And at different times and different places, we may have different camps or different ways that we should respond. It's hard to know. 
And I'd love to talk about it. If you ever want to grab coffee, I'd love to talk about Christ and culture all day. <laughs> It'll leave jittery with 10 coffees. But what we do know for sure, though, what we do know for sure is that we are called to humility. We are called to bless others. We are called to cling to Christ in a way that gives us interior freedom. And in doing so, we worship God and we glorify Him with our lives. We live in a way where God looks down at our lives and He says, that is a gracious thing in my sight. To this we are called. Now the church should be known for more than these three things, but certainly not less. So let us as Christ the King be known for these, humility, blessing, grace, and into your freedom. Let me pray. Lord, as always, we thank you for your scriptures, for the truth that they give us, for how they cut soul, divide soul and spirit, bone from marrow, and show us the truth that you want us to live in. Lord, we pray that now that your spirit would take this information, this truth from your scriptures, and implant it in our hearts in a way that bears fruit in your kingdom. Let us not depend on our own efforts, Lord, but now we invite your spirit to make this true in our lives. Make us people that glorify you and live in a way that is gracious in your sight. For your glory and for your name's sake, that the world may know that you are good. So, Lord, we lift all of this up to your great and holy name. Amen.